Welcome to Writing the Coast, the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, where I talk to the authors and illustrators whose books are shortlisted for the annual prizes and celebrate the work being written and read in British Columbia and the Yukon. I'm Megan Cole, your host, and I'm excited to welcome our second guest to the podcast. And what a wonderful guest she is. Lindsay Wong's book, The Woo Woo, How I Survived Ice Hockey, Drug Raids, Demons, and My Crazy Chinese Family, won the 2019 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize, along with being shortlisted for the Hillary Weston Writers Trust Award and the Stephen Leacock Medal of Humor. It's been described as addictive, heartbreaking, and batshit insane, and a memoir that will leave you astonished and incredulous. Welcome to the podcast, Lindsay. Seeing as I blathered on about the woo-woo and didn't say what it was about, I'm wondering if you can start our episode off with a little bit of a reading from your book. For sure. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, no worries. I'm so excited to have you. Great. My mother had survived third world poverty in what had once been the rural outskirts of Hong Kong. Her grandfather's prosperous merchant family had sold their schizophrenic daughter, my grandma, to a poor man for just a hundred bucks before jumping ship to Vancouver. Not only had my grandmother been cut off from the family fortune, but she had been basically been abandoned in a backwater village to run around barefoot and be infamously crazy. So my mother and her siblings had grown up with nothing to eat but all the cigarettes they cared to smoke. Gung Gung, my grandfather, doled out economy packs like candy because he got them for free with his gambling, win or lose. I imagined my mother and my aunties and uncles as toddlers squatting in ankle-deep mud, chubby black flies chewing the thick grease off their sculpts, smoking cigarettes, having a blast. Because as soon as you turn two years old, Gung Gung, proudly handed you your very own pack to help with the hunger. When they were lucky enough to buy a whole chicken, only the boys could partake in the skimpy meal, and I imagined my mother as a kid sulkily huffing and puffing on her cigarettes all day long as she watched her brothers gorge on fresh meat. Each of the eight kids had a favorite sibling or someone they felt a little sorry for. My mother looked out for my aunt, who was six years younger. She was responsible for plucking lice out of Beautiful One's thick, horsey hair. And when Beautiful One was too vain to want an ugly boy's haircut, my mother would slap her into agreement. A sympathetic auntie once told me, lucky you, you got the meanest person in the family for your mommy, which was true because my mother was certainly the most demanding sister. In times of famine and hardship, Having my mother around meant that you had a better chance of survival. At mealtimes, the quickest or the biggest kid got the most rice through speed or physical intimidation. In those simple village days, dinners were violent world wars. So alliances and strategies had to be forged and schemed. If you were not a blessed boy, the chicken thighs were definitely out of the question. But as a little girl you could always brawl over a measly gizzard or a bleeding poultry heart. My mother shared her dinner organs with my aunt, and sometimes she did not eat. This was a compassionate side of my mother that I had never seen, 
and it seemed that it had slowly leaked out, like battery acid, during her marriage to my father, who had a selfishly polarizing effect on her. It was almost as if she had to hide any slivers of kind-heartedness from my father to avoid being discovered for what she really was or what she could be, show a little self-sacrificing compassion, and my father might mock you, then a nasty ghost would take possession of you. At dinner parties, when the aunties and uncles talked about the old days, they loved to compare the exact size and length of their parasites. Supposedly, these were dangling snakes that they had to pluck out from their assholes, and my mother always bragged about her squiggling cobra being four feet long, whereas beautiful one said hers was a beast at six feet. They could spend hours arguing over whose monster worm was scarier, which one was hairier, whose had a googly eye. And I assumed that because they had nothing to focus on back then, except their miserable poverty, this is what they discussed to pass the hours as they happily puffed a pack a day. When the dimensions and forms of these mythological serpents had been discussed to death, the siblings all complained about their terrible childhood hunger. To reassure themselves that a food shortage did not exist anymore, they ordered in dozens of cardboard pizzas, soggy boxes of saturated fried chicken, and entire menus from the greasy spoons for Lunar New Year. The sweet and sour pork bleeding a vicious celebratory red, the black fermented fish heads tossed in maggoty fried rice, everything and anything ordered to make up for not eating when they were children. Of course, all the cousins had lost their appetites by now, and we stared at the foot-long, slimy rice noodles, the caterpillar-like vermicelli coagulating in sludgy sauce with queasy, unspeakable horror. Thank you. Thank you. It's such a great scene. Um, how did you go about writing that scene? Was your family fairly open about what they'd gone through, or did you have to do some research? So with my family, we tend not to really talk about things, but at the same time, when people get together, they complain, right? Mm -hmm. um, so people aren't necessarily talking about how they feel or how horrible things had been, but they might complain about parasites. So, you know, we have people sitting around, you know, we're eating and, and they're talking about, oh, in the old days, this happened and that happened. And of course, you know, if you grow up in my family and you go to a bunch of these um, huge food events, you end up hearing a lot about people's parasites, which is, <laughs> you know, it, it can be kind of unsettling at first if you're new to the family. My my mom was a nurse, so there was similar unsettling conversation <laughs> around our table. Not right. not our own parasites, probably other people's parasites. Oh, okay. Well, that's always interesting. I mean, I mean, I thankfully have never had a parasite, but you know, it can be. It's it's kind of hilarious when you're sitting around Thanksgiving or Chinese New Year, and everyone's like, "Yeah, you know, in in those days, this happened and that happened, and then we were, you know, we had to do X, Y, Z, and there was lice, and you're just like, you know, I don't know if I can finish my food anymore." <laughs> uh, when I read your book earlier this year, I was hooked like right from the beginning, and as so many people have said, the story just it seemed unbelievable and wild. But of course, this was your life and your childhood and your family. Um, so how did you feel about your childhood and family before you started putting them on the page? 
for me, I almost fell into the memoir genre by accident. Um, I didn't really know that I was writing a memoir um, until I got into the nonfiction program at Columbia. And I had this chapter and and then it started to kind of evolve, right? And then I think like people actually don't know they're writing about themselves until, you know, people tell them um, when you're in workshop. And for me, it was sort of like a lot of anger. And I think when you are young and you and you live with people who have untreated mental illness, you know, you, it kind of, it's all bottled up. And then when you go away, I moved to New York City when I did my MFA program. And that was where I started to gain a bit of perspective. And, and then I think with writing this memoir, it really helped because I was able to kind of put everything in scenes, put everything in dialogue. And, you know, then I was able to understand my, my family as people who were three-dimensional. Yeah. And yeah. for me, it was this almost this revelation and this cathartic thing. But at the same time, I know people are like, this happened and that happened. I'm like, yeah, no, it really did. I was, you know, my plane caught fire. <laughs> um, I was in room 666. I mean, the universe, sometimes I think the universe hates me. But at the same time, I think, you know, I've also been very lucky. I mean, and something I, I, I really was drawn to with your book was um, it kind of highlights the way in our own lives we normalize things as like a survival technique or I'm not sure what it is, um, especially when we don't have that outside perspective that you talked about kind of when you went away to New York. And I've heard that you you've kind of talked about how for a long time you thought it was all normal, like this was your life and you had nothing to compare it to. Um so how did that process look between, you know, taking things that you just thought were every day and then putting them on the page in a way that you thought people would want to read about them? It was a long process, very hard. Um, I credit a lot of it with creative writing programs and people reading in and being like, this is really effed up, Lindsay. So, you know, mean, you know, you have this uncle and you can't use toilet paper. I'm like, yeah. Um, and I would write it in its very normal way. And people are like, um, so you realize that this is not normal, right? And I'm like, how so? Tell me about your family. <laughs> and it would be kind of, it would be funny, but also very eliminating. And so we had to kind of go through it, the manuscript and be like, okay, so this is weird. Can you tell me more about why it's weird? Yeah. And so that was, that was interesting. Um, I'm someone who is, I think, pretty private. And I think um, no one actually knew about my family or their untreated um, mental illness until the book came out. So I had a lot of friends um, from high school, um, for example, Jitmana Chu, um, who wrote a piece for Horizons. And she's like, why didn't you tell me about any of this? Um, we had gone to high school, UBC and Columbia together. And I was like, you know, it's, I thought it wasn't a big deal. And she's like, yeah, it is. I, I just read your memoir and I was really shocked. And I was like, oh, okay. So I think that, that yeah. I'm still, I mean, I'm still learning and I'm still having these conversations and it's, it's definitely eye-opening for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think what I, you know, people love dysfunctional families and I don't know if it's because all of our families are dysfunctional on some level, but d- did you find that people really connected to that part of your book when they talked, when you connected with people at readings and that sort of thing? Yeah, I mean, I was definitely surprised because um, I had people who had grown up in really strict Catholic backgrounds and they were like, yeah, yeah, my, um, you know, my family said it was based on the supernatural too. And I had people 
um, from, you know, Italian families, people from all over who were like, yeah, my family's just like this. And someone um, came up to me and said, you know, I really appreciate how honest you are because sometimes, you know, most people are always talking about how they, you know, make up with their family at the end. And yours was sort of like, this is how it is, you know, family, there's no sort of defining moment like in a, in a happy ending, right? You, you know, you have people that you don't still, you don't talk to. And at the same time, you know, you have people that are still in your lives and sometimes there's no reason for it. And I found that really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Was that a challenge with the the writing of the book? That whole like not having a happy ending thing? Because I've I've heard of uh, people writing memoirs and they go out and shop them around to publishers, and the publishers really they want that kind of clean and nice ending. Was that it? Did you come up against that as you were shopping your book around? I actually did not, but I did have trouble deciding where to end it. Um, I remember talking to my thesis advisor in grad school and I was like I my memoir doesn't have an ending because I'm still alive and he's like okay so what everyone is doing now is ending it in front of grad school so you kind of need a scene where you you know um when it's it provides hope but at the same time you know we have to be honest I'm like okay we'll just end it at the airport um but for me the response from publishers was um that they were kept saying you know this book is too dark Mm -hmm. too weird too niche right and they were, um, I remember a publisher saying, um, Tiger Mom works because it's universal, but this type of family, this type of book is too niche. And I, th- I remember thinking, but this is about mental illness, right? Um, but I think certain um, publishers hadn't read anything like this before, so they didn't quite know what to do with it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It seems like there's a lot of books, thankfully, that are kind of coming out about mental health and stigma around mental health. And uh, I know in many households, there's often that feeling like mental illness is kind of a private matter and should be dealt with by the family and not uh, with outside influence. And we see that a bit in your book as well. Um, how has it been going public with that sort of stuff by writing the woo-woo um, and taking it from public to private? Or private to public, sorry. No, it's been so surreal at the same time. And sometimes I'm like, did I even write this book? Is it here? Um, But, you know, people have been really supportive. Um, I've had people from the Chinese community like, you know, you know, thank you for speaking so openly about something that we are so ashamed of. Um, In, you know, Chinese culture, we don't like to talk about mental illness. We don't like to talk about anything that's really personal because, you know, you're sharing secrets of the family And for me, you know, that was never really a problem because I wasn't really thinking about who would read this book. I was just like, this is my story. It's on the page. And, you know, here it is. Right. Um, And I think that's what people do find refreshing. And um, it's been definitely it's been strange as I think it's been very strange. Um, as I mentioned before, my my friends from high school and in UBC and Columbia were like, this is this is you and I'm like yeah yeah it was me um because memoir you know it's kind of like a I guess a collage of who you are right as a person growing up mm-hmm. <laughs> did you always know you were going to include the the mental illness component was that present from the beginning or did you play that up as you were um, revising and editing I think because mental untreated mental illness has always been something in our family but I didn't know what it was it was sort of like the woo-woo right Mm -hmm. and so of course I knew I was going to be able to write about my family and you know the woo-woo was going to play a huge part 
But I think, you know, for me, I actually didn't really think so much about how mental illness could affect me until the incident with my aunt happened on Canada Day. And that was sort of like when something that was so private had suddenly gone public. And then it was for me, it was sort of like kind of having to deal with it and having all these emotions and being like, oh, my God, you know, this is real. Right. I mean, there's something about seeing a headline in the news that sort of makes things kind of at least it made me have a wake up call and realize that, you know, there's something wrong with our family and I need to, you know, put this all in perspective. And in many ways, you know, it gave me a climax to my book. <laughs> it's nice when your life does that, isn't it? <laughs> um, how has how your family responded to the book? I remember uh, I saw you at last year's Vancouver Writers Festival, and you said at that time they were all waiting for it on the holds list at the library. Have they read it now? Well, so I'm sure they received the book um, because my brother, you know, I went up to him and I said, so, you know, they're number 10. They must have gotten it by now. Yeah. Did they like it? And my brother was like, well, um, I guess so. No one said anything. And I was like, okay, I guess that's kind of a good sign if no one has mentioned it. Um, and then I asked my brother, I said, you know, are you going to read it? And he was like, no, I think you're kind of a shitty writer, Lizzie. And I'm like, <laughs> thanks, you know, siblings. Um, but with my you know, my family, we don't really talk about the book, you know, I'm sure they know it's there. I mean, I'm sure they've read, you know, the articles, but we don't, we don't actually talk about what's inside the book, or how anyone was portrayed, which is sort of, you know, an interesting thing about having this kind of Chinese family, you know, we, we complain about things that are not actually (laughs) directly related to something else. So yeah, so I'm sure maybe they talk about me when I, when, you know, when I leave the room at Thanksgiving or something. But no one has actually said, so I don't like my depiction. Yeah. 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 Which has been hilarious, but also strange at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. I loved all the nicknames and pseudonyms of your characters. How did those come about? Were those like things that were floating in your mind at the time when you were a teenager? Or did you come up with those, you know, to create real characters in your book? Well, these are actually just translated versions of their Chinese names, right? It's funny how um, real life kind of helps book life, you know? Yeah. 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 So um, my my name translated from Chinese actually means talented one. Um, my dad's name is Confucius Gentleman. So these are kind of like direct translations. Yeah. yeah. I remember there being, uh, there was uh, uh, one, you have to excuse me, it's been a while since I've read it, but um, about the, the pizza face. Uh, oh, um, I'm that, guessing that wasn't a direct translation. No, no. no Chinese um, people, especially my family, they give nicknames to, um, you know, people like they'll meet someone and be like, yeah, you look like a pizza head or no, she looks like a potato. Like, I don't know. My it's all it's funny, but it can be very cruel sometimes. Yeah. yeah. You get a nickname like if, if someone sees you, I don't know. They'll just come up with something on the spot. Yeah. yeah. So we've heard you talk about uh, humor as a coping mechanism, and I think we all, uh, you know, benefit from that a little bit. So how did you navigate the humor in your writing? Was it natural for you to write that way, or was it something you kind of played with? I didn't actually know I was funny until I I moved to New York. I think there's something about the city that, you know, makes you develop a really strong sense of humor. 
yeah. um, in New York. It also makes you cry. I don't know. New York is hard. Um, but for me, it was kind of like, you know, going into it, writing it. And then people like, this is actually really funny. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's awesome. Because I thought it was sort of funny, but I wasn't sure if it was being communicated that way. And for me, I think it was, we had way too many jokes. And my agent was like, you know, are you writing a joke book? Or are you writing a memoir? And I said, I guess I'm writing a memoir. And she's like, great, let's cut 30% of the jokes. And so I had to go through and kind of comb everything and look at certain scenes and be like, you know, do I want to laugh here? Or do I want to hit a more poignant, you know, moment? And I think, you know, that's kind of like writing. It's very, I guess it's right. It's, it's mathematical in many ways. And it's very structured. And, and that was kind of interesting. I mean, I would love to write a joke book, right? As, <laughs> but I don't think it would work for 350 pages. You never know. <laughs> Who knows, right? I mean, I'd rather laugh than cry, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I heard that when you, when you were shopping your book around, uh, and you mentioned earlier that it was, you know, people said it was dark and it was niche. I heard you faced a lot of rejection with the book. How was that process for you? It was really hard because, you know, you don't expect, I mean, I did expect rejection, but at the same time, there was just so much frustration because you spend years working on a book. You spend years kind of refining it, working with an agent you know, working workshop. And when people are like, this isn't working, and they kind of don't give you really specific feedback on it, because you've done the most you can with the craft, and they're like, no one's gonna buy it. It's kind of, it's almost heartbreaking. But I've always been a really resilient person. And I'm always like, you know, if they don't want it too bad, I'm gonna find someone who will and and, and it paid off um, yeah. many, many years and many, many letters. Yeah, for yeah. sure. Yeah. How was the process working with a, a small publisher? I know you worked with Arsenal Pulp, which is a great BC-based publisher. How was that process for you? Oh, amazing. Um, um, Brian and everyone there, they've been so supportive of the book. They loved it immediately. And my editor, Shara Rose, has been really, really great. She gave me all these notes, and I did two revisions with her. But the process was painless. And then they also have an amazing publicist. They have a Sonera there who was just so supportive and she was just like, I was really actually really nervous um, about going um, and doing all these interviews and readings because I'm a really introverted person. People who don't, who read the book and then they meet me and they're like, you're so different. I'm almost the opposite. I'm like, because, you know, I'm, I'm pretty quiet and, you know, talking to the public scares me to death. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a really amazing experience and I'm just so lucky. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you working on now? So I have a YA book coming out in the summer of 2020. It's called My Summer of Love and Misfortune. And it's going to be a super fun, more um, book geared to high school students. That sounds exciting. I work with teens at the library, so I will keep an eye out for that one. Oh, great. Well, I can't wait to read what you're doing next. I I just loved the woo-woo. And I just want to thank you so much, Lindsay, for being on the podcast. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. It was so much fun. That's another episode of Writing the Coast. Thank you so much for listening. I'm your host, Megan Cole. And our next episode will be with Leisha Rosnow. Uh, And we will be discussing her beautiful book of poetry, Our Familiar Hunger. We're also going to chat about her newly released novel. And there will be a special guest host for that episode. 
For more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes and our podcast, be sure to visit the new website, bcyukonbookprizes.com. Thank you.